This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's a new week, Monday. Um, I think gastroenterology is what we're doing this week, right, Daphne? Hopefully. That's what I prepared. <laughs> yeah. We've had some mishaps as to what we prepared, what we thought we were supposed to prepare <laughs> in the past weeks. And if you haven't noticed, then that means we did a good job. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, gastroenterology. Um, yeah, this is this is going well. This is going well. GI is a high yield topic. It can be a bit difficult, so I think people will benefit from the questions we have lined up for this week. You don't say anything. You're just ready to go. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thought we were going to dive not, right in. Let's not waste any time. Um, yeah. Daphna, question one. A term female infant develops bilious emesis at 48 hours of age. She has not passed meconium. Her abdomen is extremely distended. Physical examination shows a normal appearing perineum. Abdominal radiographs show dilated small and large bowel with absence of rectal air. No other anomalies are apparent. Of the following, the most likely diagnosis in this infant is choice A, annular pancreas, choice B, duodenal atresia, choice C, Hirschsprung disease, choice D, ileal atresia, choice E, pyloric stenosis. So I think the key here is that um, you have a lot of like bowel air, right? Dilated small and large bowel and absence of rectal air. So, I mean, this has to be a really distal problem. Um, so, I mean, annular pancreas, duodenal atresia, those are pretty high. Pyloric stenosis uh, actually uh, doesn't really present uh, with bilious vomiting. So you're really left with ileal atresia and Hirschsprung disease. Um, and Hirschsprung's would be more distal. It's definitely more common. So uh, C, Hirschsprung. You are correct. C is the answer. The features of the infant in the vignette, like you said, they are signs of distal intestinal obstruction, which fits with Hirschsprung's disease. The typical presentation of Hirschsprung is obviously this famous delay in passing your first meconium. Um, the bowel obstruction then leads to bilious emesis, abdominal distension, and, um, and really all this stems from an absence of intramural ganglia in the affected bowel segment. What you see when you get an x-ray is that uh, you have distension of both small and large bowel with lack of rectal air. Um, really, this stems from a failure of neural crest migration that happens at eight to 10 weeks. That's, I think, something else they could mm -hmm. ask you. They tend to like these two-step processes. Uh, the incidence of Hirschsprungs is one in 5,000. And it mostly, do you know if it affects mostly male or female? Uh, I think it affects mostly males. That's Even right. 80%. Yeah, That's right. 80% are male. And it's associated with a bunch of other uh, genetic disease like trisomy 21, uh, Wardenberg syndrome, and so on and so forth. Um, these, these lack of ganglion, uh, ganglia cells 
um, usually um, are 80% of the time in the rectosigmoid, uh, and the rectosigmoid is involved 80% of the time. Um, and in 5 to 10% of the time, it's the entire colon. Um, and like we said, the no meconium at, for the first 24, 48 hours, abdominal distension, failure to thrive, they could also have, interestingly enough, urinary obstruction mm -hmm. from this anatomical, uh, it would be an anatomical urinary obstruction. Um, the most famous complication of um, Hirschsprung's disease, I think this is super testable as well, is bacterial enterocolitis. And this is what... If you've ever been there when the surgeons counsel these parents after they're about to go home, they tell them, if your baby doesn't pass stools within a couple of days, this is not like a normal child. You have to be worried because if there's any um, backlog of stool and you could really at risk for bacterial enterocolitis. The diagnosis, obviously, as we know, is made with biopsies and the treatment is surgical. Interestingly enough, you mentioned some of these other answer choices. So why were they not uh, make sense? So the annular pancreas leads to a um, leads to duodenal atresia with this double bubble appearance on the radiograph, and there's limited distal air. Ileal atresia is the triple bubble sign with multiple dilated loops of bowels with air fluid uh, levels, and infants with pyloric stenosis will not really have bilious emesis, but rather they'll have this projectile non-bilious vomiting. So this is why these other choices were incorrect. Yeah, good job. Thank you. Okay, question two. A male fetus with an intestinal atresia has an intrauterine intestinal perforation at 28 weeks gestation. What is the most likely postnatal radiographic finding? A, a dilated bowel loops, B, intra-abdominal calcifications, C, paucity of bowel gas, D, pneumatosis, or E, portal venous gas? Um, I thought this question was relatively easy just because I've had babies with uh, intrauterine okay. intestinal perforations in the past. And I remember that as the meconium finds its way in the peritoneum, dries, I guess dries, I think of it as drying over time, mm -hmm. and it creates these little calcifications. So I knew I, knew I had seen that before. So I picked choice B, intra-abdominal calcifications. Yeah, the question is a little tricky, right? Because this is a this is a, a baby who has intestinal atresia, but they're hinting that probably the the cause of that is, is something that happened in, during the uterine period. And so that's absolutely right. So intra-abdominal calcifications. So um, a baby who has uh, an atresia almost at any level um, can lead to in utero perforation. And then when... Um, the bowel contents spill into the peritoneum, it's actually the, the inflammation, the inflammatory response that causes all of this calcification. Oh. Um, but we will we can see that on postnatal x-rays, uh, usually overlying the liver, but actually, I mean, they can be anywhere um, on the abdominal film, um, depending on the location of the perforation. Um, what else did I want to tell you? 86% uh, of fetuses with meconium peritonitis have intra-abdominal calcifications, and they're usually visible approximately eight days after the perforation. And if you find in a baby that you see uh, meconium and urinary calcifications, um, that may be in a baby that has also a recto-urethral fistula, which can accompany an atresia.
Hmm. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that meconium ileus can cause meconium uh, peritonitis because of the same reason, like a functional atresia. And so babies who have uh, intra-abdominal calcifications where you're concerned for um, uh, a uterine perforation should be worked up for cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. Is it uh, th those fistulas, is it with the urethra or with the bladder? Uh, Recto-urethral fistulas. I see. I see. More commonly. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't have any other questions. So it's not it's not that the poop is drying out in the abdomen. No, it's, it's actually the inflammation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that's okay. <laughs> that's a good way to remember it. That's that's that whatever works. Um, okay, Daphne, you, you you're up next then. Mm -hmm. So um, you're doing question five. A three-day-old term infant develops abdominal distension and has not passed meconium. A barium contrast enema reveals a narrowed segment of the colon with dilated bowel proximal to the involved segment. Which of the following diseases is associated with a small left colon or microcolon? Choice A, maternal diabetes. Choice B, maternal hypothyroidism. Choice C, maternal lupus. Choice D, maternal myasthenia gravis and choice E is a combination of A and B, which were maternal diabetes and maternal hypothyroidism. Um, so, so A, maternal diabetes, I know is associated um, with microcolon. Um, hypothyroidism, though, I wasn't so sure about. Um, maternal lupus is not, myasthenia, gra myasthenia gravis is not. Then you were left with A and B. And I thought about it a little bit longer, and I did go with E subsequently, and I and that is the correct answer. They are both associated with microcolon. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Yes, uh, the answer was E, both maternal diabetes and hypothyroidism. Um, and there's actually, it's not just the only two, right? I mean, uh, other, mm -hmm. other, other. Lots of things. Situations can lead to a microcolon. Maternal toxemia is one of them. Prematurity, obviously, if you've ever done a barium study in a premature baby, they tend to have also sometimes um, a very small colon. Um, and um, uh, uh, it can be a rare complication of a sequel perforation. That's, that's relatively rare. The pathogenesis of a small left colon is postulated to result from a functional immaturity of the ganglion cells and primarily affecting the descending and rectosigmoid colon. This functional obstruction leads to abdominal distension, inability to pass meconium, and the barium contrast enema study will show a colon segment with dilated proximal bowel. This is usually a typical sign of an obstruction where the proximal segment is always more dilated. <clears throat> the, the big question that sometimes you could have is, um, since it's it's a bit like Hirschsprung, where the descending mm -hmm. and the rectosigmoid colon is affected, is there a way to not be tricked by these two? And um, the in the microcolon, the rectum's not involved. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something that's important to uh, remember. So yeah, good job. Thank you. Okay, uh, I think our last one for for today. Question eight: A former twenty nine week gestational age infant, now with a postmenstrual age of thirty six weeks gestation, has persistent postprandial emesis and has been treated twice for aspiration pneumonia. You are concerned about pathologic gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD and would like to confirm the diagnosis. Which of the following will most reliably diagnose GERD in this infant? A. Esophageal endoscopy. 
B, esophageal manometry, C, impedance monitoring, D, nuclear scintigraphy, or an E, uh, an upper GI series? Yeah, the, I love these questions because if you've managed babies, you, you should know the answer. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and it's true that a lot of the choices here that are being offered, um, like an upper GI series, uh, could help you diagnose reflux, but they will wanted to know the most reliable for the diagnosis of GERD. And it is still a, a pretty um, controversial sub subject mm -hmm. because the impedance monitoring is obviously the one that I picked and um, it's called the impedance monitoring, but it's, it's a pH probe basically, right? And, and you would monitor the pH in the esophagus uh, where you would you would see if an episode of reflux is uh, it's documented by having some more acidity in the esophagus. So I chose C impedance monitoring. So that's correct, but I have some clarifications. Go ahead. <laughs> some minor clarifications. So um, you're right. Impedance um, monitoring is the right answer. So um, this could help us, but actually the impedance monitoring is different than the pH probe. Um, so a pH probe could have been an, an alternate answer here um, that measures truly the acidity, um, but the impedance monitoring um, is actually um, pH independent. It really looks at um, the change in resistance to electrical current flow between sensors throughout the esophagus. So um, that long um, probe has multiple sensors. And so um, what it does is it, is it captures uh, reflux, really. So it's, it's capturing even something that is not acidic. It would capture um, the difference as that um, fluid is rising towards one of the other sensors. It can sense pH, so it will indicate um, acidic events and non-acidic events. Um, but that's why impedance monitoring is kind of slightly the better choice than a pH probe um, mm. because we know that some babies have reflux that is um, the acidity is not the problem, um, but it's just the actual liquid coming up um, into the esophagus. Um, the other thing that impedance monitoring can look at is how long the liquid's in the esophagus and how long it takes for the bolus to be cleared from the esophagus. So it really is the most reliable method currently used to diagnose GERD in an infant. Some of the other choices, um, again, the pH monitoring could have been a choice. If you were going to do that, you'd want to make sure you stop any anti-acid reflux medications beforehand. Um, but again, most uh, most recently, studies are finding that non-acid reflux is a common cause of reflux in our babies, especially the preterm baby. Um, endoscopy um, can visualize the esophagus. You can take biopsies of the esophageal epithelium, but it's not really used for um, reflux. It would be useful if you wanted to see if there was some sort of inflammatory um, esophageal process going on, something you wanted to take a biopsy of. The role of nuclear scintigraphy um, is really not used. It's kind of theoretically that it could be used. It could detect non-acid and acid reflux. It could um, evaluate gastric emptying, and it could theoretically demonstrate aspiration. Um, but we don't really have a lot of standardized techniques, especially in infants and especially in the preterm infant. 
an upper GI series can be um, very valuable looking at anatomy, can look at motility, and it, it would theoretically see reflux um, of, of things coming back into the esophagus or up into the, the mouth. Um, but it's so fast that we could easily miss um, uh, episodes of reflux. Uh, really good, again, for looking at an anatomy, strictures, echolasia, malrotation, um, volvulus, obviously. Um, and what else did I want to tell you? So just a little bit about GERD in general. Um, it affects, um, oh, sorry, I wanted to talk about esophageal manometry. So manometry is really looking at kind of the uh, peristalsis in the, in the esophagus. So uh, are the muscles working correctly? Um, and so um, manometry is not really helpful for looking at uh, reflux. Um, mostly, again, evaluating the sphincter tone and, and function, but not if anything's coming through the sphincter. So true pathological reflux, GERD, reflux disease, um, is really in 6 to 7% of term infants, 7 to 10% of preterm infants, though many infants will have reflux that's not GERD or reflux disease. Um, so many babies spit up, but they have good weight gain. Uh, they're not irritable. It doesn't really affect them. But these babies with reflux disease, um, they can have lots of MSS, poor weight gain, and respiratory problems such as wheezing and aspiration like this baby, lots of pain and back um, arching. It can lead to, if it's longstanding, oral aversions, things like esophageal stricture because of esophagitis. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, again, when we're talking about reflux, um, this could be a question theoretically um, looking at reflux as it relates to events in preterm babies, um, but uh, they're actually finding that sometimes events are preceding reflux episodes. So at this time, reflux itself is not felt to be the cause of things like Brady DSAT events. Yeah, and even if it's not something that I'm pretty sure this is a there's another question data bank bank where I saw this question asked. I thought I forgot if it was maybe Neo Reviews or if it was in the Brodsky and Martin, but I remember You know, I, rem I think we did this question <laughs> in the respiratory section. Um, there you go. There that may be it. But I want to clarify something. So that's really interesting. So the impedance monitoring, um, it is a pH probe, but not only, meaning it does yes. measure pH, but it has an added component. And from what you explained, let me tell me if I'm if I misunderstood. But it has an additional component that measures also resistance um, in the esophagus that allows you to feel like if even anything is coming up, not just uh, something that's acidic. So it has this double function. Yeah, that's correct. It can measure pH. Um, but it will evaluate all episodes of reflux, even if they're not acidic, even if they don't change the pH. That's really um, cool. Because, okay. yeah, it, it because to me, the way I answered this question was that uh, I knew there were probably something else in the impedance monitoring that would be involved, but I remember that it did do pH. And because there was no other choice like that, I just picked this one because I, I knew this was most likely the right answer. However, yeah. so if it you were... it would have been harder if they had yeah. pH and impedance. But if you had the pH probe in there, you would have picked the impedance monitoring over the pH probe because the advantage of the impedance monitoring is that in addition to measuring pH, it will also pick up on non-acidic reflux. That's right. That's amazing. Thank you, you Dafna. No problem. <laughs> All right. I think that's it for today. All right, guys. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a good day. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.